God, sing with me how great is our God, and all will see how great, how great is our God. Name above all names, worthy of our Through Jesus, you opened the eyes of the blind, you healed the sick, and you fed the hungry. We give you thanks and praise for your mercy and your love. Loving Father, by the Spirit, you restore strength to the weary and give hope to those who are in despair. We give you thanks and praise for your mercy and your love. You call us to proclaim your deeds and your wonders to all people. You call us to worship and serve you that all may be made whole. You offer us a new life of righteousness. We give you thanks and praise for your mercy and your love. Make us worthy, O Lord, to receive all your gifts. Descend on us like the light of a new day. Give light to our souls and put your praise upon our lips. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be together as we worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why we're here. That's, uh, that's the reason we gather. We're made to praise. We're made to worship him. And so we do that uh, every day, but specifically on the Sabbath day together as a body of believers as we're renewed and refreshed with the covenant promises that God has given to us. If you're visiting with us this morning, uh, I'd like to meet you. Um, if you don't want to meet me, you don't have to, but we do have a, a, a little gift for you on the, the Narthex table. It's a bottle with uh, some information on our church, so feel free to grab one of those on your way out. Let me extend to you our Lord's greeting, and then we'll greet those around us. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Would you greet those around you?
take away the thorn in his flesh, God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. When we tire our thorns of the flesh, when the struggles of this point are weaknesses, when we feel like broken vessels, God says to us, my grace is sufficient for you. That is amazing grace. Blind, but now 
can see you now. Oh, I can see the love in your eyes, laying yourself down, raising up the broken to the confession begins with a responsive reading. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. The spirit of the Lord said, I will lead the blind by a road they do not know. By the paths they have not known, I will guide them. Rough places into ground. The Lord said to, said to his servant, It is uh, too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as light to the nations, salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Then your light shall break forth like a dawn. And your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindication shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Christ has come. The Lord has risen upon you. For the darkness shall cover the earth and the thick darkness the people. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Come, Lord Jesus, our light and our salvation. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Our call to confession is this. When Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, he became like us in all things but sin. May we who have been reborn in him be free from our sinful ways, and so we confess our sin to God. Would you bow your head as I pray a prayer of confession? Our Heavenly Father, in this time of Advent, now moving into a new year, We come together, Lord, regularly before you, and we consider your ways, and we consider our ways. And if we're honest with ourselves, Lord Jesus, we know our ways are not your ways. Our ways are often rebellion against your ways. If we look deeply, Lord, we see the depth of our brokenness, we see the depth of our sin. We have constant reminders of the sins of our past. But as we look further beyond our sin, we see you, Jesus. We see the one who knew no sin, who took on flesh, who lived among us, who bore the weight of our sin against God the Father. And we thank you, Lord, for taking our sin from us. Lord, and now you call us to walk in newness of life, and as your Holy Spirit reveals sin to us, I pray that we would not stay dormant, but we would repent, 
turn from those sins and continue to follow you. So Lord, we now just take a moment to silently confess those sins to you. Amen. Now receive the assurance of pardon. This is based on Isaiah 52 and Luke 2. Break forth together in singing, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm. Before the eyes of all the nations on all the ends of the earth shall see him, the salvation of our God. People of God, through the coming of Jesus Christ, whose birth we celebrate, the Lord has comforted and redeemed us too. In Christ, we receive the salvation of our God. Glory be to God in the highest. As I said on Christmas Eve, if you uh, were to join us today, we're going to pick up uh, part of the story that we didn't dive into on Christmas Eve, and that uh, being Herod. So we've we've wrapped up up our series on Christmas hymns. Uh, Maybe we'll pick that up in a couple years or two again. Uh, I thought it was a fun one to go through. had some good feedback on that. But today we're going to talk about Herod. And let me just say before we get into it, uh, the ESVs, if you've ordered one, it's, they've been ordered. Uh, thank you, Winnie, for uh, getting them in our next order. And we've ordered some large print ones, and those new Bibles will be put out now next week. Um, if you do want to still order one, this is the one that we get for uh, our seniors. It's the regular study Bible. I'd recommend that one. Uh, there's lots of good study Bibles. Um, just the one I, I like, if you need a recommendation. But again, those will be out next week. <clears throat> and as it relates, uh, I don't have the scripture on the PowerPoint this morning because of the length of the text, so you're going to have to listen. We'll do it the old-fashioned way, the audible word read and heard. So either you can follow along in your own Bibles or listen as I read the portion of Scripture when we get to it. So we're in a visual age. Uh, pictures have always been um, important for people. Uh, You know, as you look in the old cathedrals, the old church structures, all the stained glass windows, all the pictures you'd see in the stained glass windows, now they were there for a reason, uh, and they were there uh, primarily in the beginning for those that were illiterate, so they could see the picture, the story told to them, they could learn through pictures. But pictures just have a profound effect on us. Uh, There's one picture um, this Christmas season that stood out to me more than any others, Uh, painted by a man named Leon Cogne in 1824, and this is the picture. It's a close-up of the picture. The name is The Massacre of Innocents. So there's the fuller picture. I want you to have that in your minds as we dive into the events that happened shortly after the birth of Christ and in our passage this morning. Let me pray as we move into this discussion. Our Heavenly Father, as we consider you taking on flesh, being born among us, it's like a volcano erupting. There was an instant explosion and a response from the world as there still is today. And we see that response so clearly in Herod, and we see Herod unfortunately, in each of us so often. I pray, Lord God, as you appear, either by your work in your spirit through the word, or again in your second coming, that we would respond as those who joyfully anticipated your coming, not as those who respond in fear and anger and pride 
and vanity. Help us learn from Herod and from this portion of Scripture, Lord, how we are to respond to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. <laughs> we were walking through the parking lot the other day, and my, my daughter, she's like, did you see that license plate? I'm like, no. She said, it reads, you are God. So the, the plate just said, I don't know, was it Y-O-U or you? I didn't even see it, but it's, she said it said, you are God. She's like, why would it say that? I'm like, all right, teachable moment. Why, why would it say that? Why would an atheist put on their license plate, you are God? And the simple answer is because they think they are God and they hate God. The atheist mantra is, I don't believe in God and I hate him. So I'm going to try to be God. I'm going to try to define right and wrong on my own terms. I'm going to try to define good and bad on my own terms. Give meaning to my own life. But we know it's vanity. We live in a world that has already given us definitions that don't just randomly fall upon deaf ears. We know right and wrong. The law of God is written on our heart. We know beautiful. We know ugly. We know pure. We know impure. These things are written on our hearts. The law of God imprinted on us. The very image of God in our natures. God has left us without excuse, but the atheist who says, I don't believe in God and I hate him, buys a license plate made of metal that'll be crumpled one day with that car that says, you are God. So apart from the reality of the Advent season that Christ has come into the world, born of a virgin, born sinless, born to live the life in perfect obedience to God, the life we couldn't live, to reconcile us back to God the Father because of our sin, born to rise again three days after the grave, who is now seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty in heaven, that seat of all rule and authority right now where he's putting all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, this is the Advent reality, and he's coming again in the second Advent to judge the nations, sheep and the goats, new heavens, new earth. For not embracing the reality of who God is and what he's doing, all we're left with is the meaningless statement, you are God. In this broken world of wars, rumors of wars, disease, loss, death, trials, you name it, if my only hope is that I'm God, we're all in trouble. Paul spoke to this. Hear these words. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 28. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he was raised, that he raised Christ. Whom he did not raise, if it's true, the dead are not raised. Paul continues, he says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, 
put it another way, if in this life all we have is a license plate that says, I'm God, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And Paul continues on. Refuting those who are saying there's no resurrection of the dead. Obviously it was a different question than what I've already posed this morning, but it's along the same lines. So in considering Herod and considering our own sin and considering this broken world and considering a license plate that says I am God or you are God, you know, in the 90s and the early 2000s, it was the seeker-sensitive church model that was popular. You know, I would argue that no one seeks after God unless God changes their heart. And so our model is we come to worship God. And if there are unbelievers in our midst, they have the privilege of seeing the church interact with the living God and hopefully come to faith themselves as well. But if no one seeks God unless God gives them faith, what do we do when God appears? What do we do when he shows up? In this Advent story, when Christ shows up, what happens? And I think what happens to Herod happens to those who are in rebellion against God. We respond. And I say we respond in one of two ways. We either respond in joyful faith, you are God, or we respond in anger and say, I am God. In Proverbs eight seventeen, we read this. I love those who love me, God says, and those who seek me diligently find me. Well, who seeks him then if I said no one seeks God? Well, when God gives a person faith, it's us who seek him by his spirit, who love him, who go after him. We're the ones that stand at the door and knock now. Proverbs 8, 34 to 36. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. So if you're here this morning awoken by the Spirit of God in you, the question is, are you daily seeking after him now? For those who don't know Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords, when Christ appears, there will be a different response than for those who have faith. You know, and so I've, I've, made, I've laid out this premise before, um, each person is made, obviously, in the image of God. Image can both uh, be an active and a, and a, and a passive use and in, in what we do, also in who we are. But we're made as worshipers to worship the living God. And if we're not worshiping God as we're made to worship God, we're going to worship something because we're also idolaters in our sin. We're going to be defined by something. We're going to live for something that gives our life meaning. It could be a car, a boat, a home, money, land, but all that is idolatry and it all lets you down in the end. It all leaves you in the end, but the one true God who we're made to worship never leaves or forsakes you and he is the one who defines us. We're made to worship him and him alone. So for those who worship something other than the one true God, when God reveals himself, when he appears, they will respond in opposition to him. 
So we come to our text this morning. Feel free to look at your text on your app or in your Bible. I'm going to read Matthew 2, verses 1 to 23. It's a long section, so hear these words. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. When you hear about Herod, like that that, that word troubled, wait till you hear the significance of how troubled he was. He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, and they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, the land of Judah, by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people of Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went out on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them and until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasure, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod. They departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old and under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, Take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called A Nazarene. So there's a portion of the Christmas story we don't typically get to. We love 
the Advent season, and we should. This is the introduction of Christ into the world, taking on flesh. But can't you imagine the scene that took place? Put his picture up there because of this man. Because of this man, who when God appeared, sought to destroy him. I mean, he would have the license plate, I am God. Not this kid. He's not the king of the Jews. I'm the king of the Jews. That was the title that was given to him. King of the Jews. To Herod. Just a little bit about Herod as I move into this unfolding account. He ruled between 37 BC and 4 AD. So his tomb has been found. Um, You can look it up online. There was a huge National Geographic article about it. His tomb was discovered. Um, You know, it's always hard to recommend secular sources on biblical events because uh, that National Geographic article was terrible. And uh, I'll give you a quote that they wrote at the end, but I want you to remember the life of Herod before I get to the quote at the end that the world wants you to embrace. Herod was 25 when he became governor of Galilee. His rise to king the king of the Jews, that's how he became known over Judea as their king. His political rule and reign uh, was maybe more troubling than most of us are aware of in our day and age of political leaders today. One historian says of Herod, he was of stern and cruel disposition, and that is to put it mildly, you'll hear why. Another historian says he was brutish, And he was a stranger to all of humanity. I mean, these are just charitable historians. He was a masterful city planner. You have to give him that. He built some of the worlds of that time's most beautiful structures, most beautiful buildings. One author says this about his building and rebuilding. He was fond of splendor. He lavished great sums of money in rebuilding and adorning cities of his empire. He did a lot of work in rebuilding He built amphitheaters, the the Hippodrome. He rebuilt fortresses. He rebuilt the city of Caesarea. He rebuilt the city of Samaria. He built himself an amazing royal palace in Jerusalem. And we also know about the rebuilding of the temple. Now, part of the thought was he thought uh, during Micah's time, the temple was 90 feet too short. So he just, I mean, he just just went out and and, and redid this amazing structure uh, of the temple beginning in, in B.C. 20. And finally, it was finished in A.D. 63. Uh, That would be after his death, obviously. Herod saw this effort in rebuilding the temple as making atonement for killing so many of Israel's clergy. So in his mind, he wanted his good deeds to outweigh his bad. I've killed so many of the clergy, I'm going to rebuild the temple. This will atone for it. I mean, that's the religion of the world. Let my good deeds outweigh my bad. How good can I do to overcome all the bad I've done? But the gospel is so different. The gospel is Christ or nothing. It's all Christ's good deeds over all of our bad deeds. We can never be good enough. But anyway, back to Herod. Herod was a politician to the core as well. There is one account that he lowered the taxes of the citizens by one-third, and then later lowered it by one-fourth, and he he said the reason was crop failure, so I'm going to help you save your money. But the real reason was the culture was upset with him because he'd brought in so much of the Greek influence, it was destroying the culture that they knew of. So he was trying to get people to like them by lowering their taxes. 
He would do whatever it took to set himself up in the position of supreme authority, which ultimately belonged to God himself. So Herod, when he thought necessary, would also eliminate those that were politically opposed to him. And it didn't matter who they were. Wait till you hear some of these things. One such group that stood opposed to Herod were the aristocracy. They supported a man named Antigonus. So what did Herod do? Herod executed 45 of the Sanhedrin aristocracy. Maybe the closest comparison would be the president's upset with the church, so he kills 45 prominent pastors. I mean, obviously that falls short of who the Sanhedrin were in their ruling, but the fact was they were political enemies. He put 45 of them to death. One historical account says that Herod's mother-in-law, her name was Alexandra, she stood against Herod, um, maybe kind of mildly, but the way she stood against Herod was she wanted her 16-year-old son, Aristobulus, to be the high priest. And so she put pressure on Herod by going to Cleopatra. Cleopatra pulled some strings. Uh, Herod wasn't too happy about this. So his mother-in-law and her son went into hiding. The account goes that she and her 16-year-old son tried to flee Egypt hiding in coffins, but they were eventually caught. Tell me if this story sounds familiar. It wasn't too long later that this 16-year-old Aristopolis shortly died of a swimming accident. We hear of many high-profile deaths that are chalked up as suicides in our culture as well. This is nothing new to the political world. Through other political and domestic troubles, one author writes, uh, Herod eventually went on to kill his first wife, his first of ten. Then his mother-in-law, the one that was in hiding, Alexandra. Later, he executed three of his own sons by strangulation. Three of his own sons. Now remember this when I read the National Geographic quote at the end. This is who Herod was. He was wicked. He was cruel. But part of God's plan in fulfilling prophecy, obviously, for who this Christ would be. But Herod was not a good man. And anyone who opposes the biblical account of him killing these baby boys does not understand the kind of man he was. It was totally within his character to say, go and kill these baby boys. I want that Christ wiped out. Just kill them all. Kill all these baby boys. Born within this time frame, kill them all. After a troubled reign of 37 years, he died at Jericho shortly after the birth of Christ. But get this, even on his death, so he was such a self-centered, cruel man that upon his death, he wanted the nation to mourn. They knew, or he knew the nation wouldn't mourn him. They didn't like, he was cruel. But he wanted the nation to mourn, so what he did is he locked up, what's the number here that I have? He locked up, I have an exact number of Jewish leaders that were put in the Hippodrome. Well, maybe I didn't put the exact number down, but he locked up notable Jews from all parts of the nation in the Hippodrome, and the order was that when he died, all of, all of them were to be put to death as well, so the nation would mourn the loss of its leaders. So Herod would be like, I'm one of its leaders. Everyone's going to mourn the loss of all these leaders. They're going to mourn me too, whether they like it or not. Herod dies. The Jewish leaders who were locked up were released. They were not killed. But you get a picture of who this man was. Herod's desire 
was to be God. I am God, right? That license plate. You are God. He wanted that supreme power, that supreme control. I mean, we see similar things in the world today. And if we look close enough, we see similar things in our own life. Desire for control over others, desire for power. Trying to put ourselves in positions where we can sway events for our own ends. And we ask ourselves, what are we living for? Who are we living for? Who are we worshiping? What's defining us? What's the goal of our life? What's the goal of our church together? Are we pushing on after Christ? Or are we seeking to set ourselves up in his place? Does our license plate say, I am God, or he is God? So the question we have on the table is, when God shows up, what do we do? So obviously we know that God is present. He's present with us. His spirit is in us. Where two or more are gathered, he's there. He speaks and works by and with the word of God. Uh, when he shows up, though, in that sense, like when you think of the Advent season of him coming in the flesh, or when he comes again in the flesh in a second Advent, how will we respond? Let me push further into this text here. Herod, in the midst of setting himself up as a god, God shows up. What do we read? Let me read again verse 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Can you imagine Herod's just infuriation with that comment? Oh, I'm right here. The wise men are saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. And have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? So there's his first problem. You're giving that title to somebody else? To a baby because you saw a star? So Herod and all of Jerusalem were troubled. So what does Herod do? Herod wanted to know where the Messiah was, so he sent some of his wise men to find them. We read this in verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Just sounds noble, right? Bring me word where he is, and I'm going to come and worship him too. That was not his intent. He had no intention of worshiping a political rival, even if it was an infant he would find Jesus and his family and have them killed. Some historical things as we move on. Uh, the wise men here, uh, there's a lot to be said about them, but let me just say simply, uh, they were astronomers in its simplest explanation. Uh, it was a sophisticated science at the time of studying the stars and the movement of the stars. So here you have a group of uh, educated astronomers. They see something remarkable happening in the sky that they love to watch so dearly. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I mean, some nights you look up, you can see uh, Jupiter and Venus. I think that's pretty remarkable. I mean, you've seen these pictures. You've probably seen it with your own eyes. You know, they didn't have the advanced technology like we have. There was not the Hubble telescope floating around out there. There wasn't our own telescopes uh, like, like we have right now. Um, but what we do know that there were remarkable events that happened in the heavens throughout history. On November 11th in 1572, 
One account goes that astronomer Tycho Brahe observed along with millions of other people an event that both terrified and excited the world. It appeared to them that something strange was going on in the heavens. Tycho and others thought they were witnessing a new star being born. Now this is in 1572, so this is just a later account of people witnessing things in the heavens. The light from the star was both brilliant, the author said, and brighter than any other object they had seen in the sky. Um, it's reported that they could see it for days before it began to dim and go away. What they didn't know until later, what they didn't know that we now know, was that they had observed a supernova or the explosion of a star. I mean, imagine seeing that with your, your naked eyes, just, just seeing a supernova. I mean, we, we, know, we know what they look like from, from telescope views, but in the 1500s, imagine seeing something like that. Brilliant, amazing lights that no one had ever seen before. Maybe it was something like that that appeared over Jesus. We don't know, but what we know is this from the text. We read this in verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So the very notion that the star came to rest, there's a lot of debate over what that means, how it rested, how it moved, what it was. We don't know exactly, but we know it was divine. We know God was at work. They have all these fancy slides that aren't working. Anyway. So the Magi see this miraculous divine star, and they hear the star has meaning. There, that was supposed to be my neat look at where the star's leading. So the king of the Jews has been born and they go out as these scientists, they're going to see for themselves if in fact what the star declares is true. They follow it to where it stops and they find Jesus and they enter the home of where he is and they begin to worship him and offer him gifts. What do we do when God appears? So you have these scientists saying, yes, this is, this is the Messiah, this is the king of the Jews. And then an angel warns them, do not go back to Herod. Well, what does Herod do? Imagine Herod is just burning with anger. Now there's a fear of the Lord that unbelievers have. It's a, it's a fear of condemnation. It's, it's this understanding that we're guilty before God and, and if, if I submit to God, I have to change. But in believers, the fear of the Lord is what? We read this in Psalm 111. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. For the believer, we know that we're guilty. We stand guilty before God because of our sin, because of our rebellion. But we understand what Christ has done. That he's taken all of our sin, everything we've ever thought, done, all our past sins, all our future sins, he took them to the cross. We know that they've been dealt with. The fear becomes this reverent awe of thanksgiving God. Why have you done this for me? I do not deserve this forgiveness you've given to me. Christ becomes our wisdom. He becomes our joy. He becomes our hope. He becomes our direction when we see what he has done. But for the unbeliever, all there is is fear. The fear of coming judgment that's coming upon their sin. So when the atheist says, I don't believe in God, they're always silently saying, and I hate him. Psalm 14.1, we read this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. 
All of Romans 1, I mean, you can, I'll just read the beginning here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse and just in, just in rebellion against God. So when God appears... The unbeliever does what Herod did. I want him out. I want him gone. I am God, even though they know the truth. This brings me to my last point this morning, talking about this account of Herod. So what happens in our account... Matthew 2, 13 to 15. This is what happens in our account. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my child. So, so what's going on, right? I mean, it, it's, it's obvious what's going on, what Herod is trying to do. Herod's responding the way unbelievers respond to the living God when he appears. When they don't want him there, they want to do away with him. I mean, how do we do that in our culture? How, how do we seek to do away with the living God? <clears throat> well, we do, it, we do it in a variety of ways, you know, trying to make scripture irrelevant or trying to make Christians irrelevant, you know? And there are other ways cultures do it as well. Last week, um, I don't know if you saw the reports that came out, there were 11 Christians beheaded. I think it was on Christmas Eve. The world has not changed in its response to God. I remember a few years back reading that there was a $250 bounty for killing pastors in some parts of India. History hasn't changed. Whole culture is trying to get rid of the Bible, to get rid of Christian churches. China, the church is flourishing. God will not be mocked. So Herod, seeing the Magi had not returned to him, he does the next thing that Herod would do. Let me come back to that picture I started with. The massacre of the innocents. And we read this in Matthew 2.16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old or under. I mean, just let that soak in for a minute. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in that region who were two years old and under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Here's here's the National Geographic quote. This is how the world stands against God. So the National Geographic running this article on the tomb of Herod and what a wonderful city builder he was. Listen to this. 
As an astute and and generous ruler, a brilliant general, and one of the most imaginative and energetic builders of the ancient world, Herod guided his kingdom to new prosperity and power. That, That much is true. Yet today he is best known as the sly and murderous monarch of Matthew's gospel, who slaughtered every male infant in Bethlehem in an unsuccessful attempt to kill the newborn Jesus, the prophesied king of the Jews. Herod is almost certainly innocent of this crime, of which there is no report apart from Matthew's account. And we're like, what in the world? I mean, of all the things that he did, like that wasn't a big deal. But yet even our culture today would want you to side with Herod over Jesus. Because the world today, by and large, is in rebellion against God anyway. The world afraid of facing God. Herod, Herod was afraid because of his, his, his pride, his love for himself, his desire to be God. And the cries of numerous mothers and fathers went out for their sons. I mean, I can't even imagine the scene, what that was like, and I don't want to imagine the scene. But in the account this morning, in verse 17 and 18, we read this. This was fulfilled to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. As my, as my voice is leaving, the sermon is coming closer to the end anyway. <clears throat> so it all works out okay. So amidst the cries, the pain, the agony for the parents who had lost their kids, there was one boy who remained who changed the world, who would make the cries of the parents cease, who would give comfort to the wounded, give comfort to the afflicted. Those of you who have lost a loved one or a child know the comfort that Christ brings in that kind of affliction. And he is the one that would bring comfort to this region that had lost their kids. Because there remained the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who came to make right what was wrong, who came to put back together what was broken. We read this from Paul in the book of Philippians. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father." The story of Advent, the story of Herod, all points to the cross. And on the cross, we hear these words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. As we, as we think about the cross, as we think about the events of that night, as we think about Herod, my only thought is, you know, it's this Herod that put Christ on the cross. 
with my sins, with my rebellion, with my disobedience, with all of ours together, he went to the cross for us, despising its shame to restore us back into a right relationship with the Father. Christ has come. That is the story of Advent. And what have we done? Hopefully for all of us here this morning, we have got on our knees and we said, I repent of my sin and I trust you, Jesus. You have come. But we know there are many others who, like Herod, seek to destroy him. But the day will come when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. We are made for this. We are made for worship. We are made for Jesus. And so I leave you with this question. When he comes again, how will you respond? Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have come into the world, that you have taken our sin, that you've gone into the grave, that you've risen again and ascended to the right hand of the Father and are coming again. And with all the commotion and distraction in this world, Lord, might we live this world in this world. Might we live the life you've given us to your glory, seeking to do your will, that which is pleasing in your sight. And Lord, we long and look forward to that day when we come before you and you say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And we know the reason you say that to us is because of Christ, your son. So we thank you, Jesus, for restoring us back to the Father. We thank you for being born, living the life we couldn't live, taking our sin, and taking us with you, seating us in those heavenly places. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. <clears throat> Just so you know, if you're visiting with us, we have two other pastors here. So if my voice got too bad, I'm like, Tom, you're in. Kevin, you're in. Or Nate, if he's here too, like Nate could be in, right? So it's all, it's all good. Our offering this morning is for the Luke Society. We showed the video last week as it related to the Luke Society. As the offering is taken, I don't think we have our folders open, so just uh, pass the offering. And again, today it's for the Luke Society.
Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for the good that you have done, and the good you are doing, and what you have yet to do. I thank you, Lord, for the various gifts and abilities you've given to each person in this church to serve you in the ways that you've crafted us, molded us, and shaped us to serve you. <clears throat> we do come before you this morning, Lord, lifting up to you, Logan and Carla. Carla, will you pray for Calvin, Lord? We pray for good health upon Calvin. We ask, Lord, that you would give uh, just strength to his body, that as a uh, the testing is being done that the report, Lord, would be negative. I just ask that he would get a clear bill of health. Watch over Logan and Carla in this process, Lord, we do pray, but we thank you for Calvin. We pray for Carolyn Wilson. We ask for healing upon her foot as she now continues to heal from the surgery, and we know that um, she's feeling a little stir-crazy, wants to get out and move around, but we ask that she uh, would just heal fully so she could um, move in a, in a healthy way when her foot is healed. We pray for Glenn this morning, Lord, with his feet hurting. I ask that you'd watch over Darlene if she cares for him. I give wisdom to their family. For Ruth Tibble and others who, Lord, cannot join us in the service, and, um, we ask that you'd watch over members of our congregation who continue to age as we all continue to age, Lord. We'll be with Ruth, we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Advent season. We thank you for the service that we had together here on Christmas Eve and the Christmas celebration that we had as families together. I do pray for those amongst us, Lord, who holidays are often a time of grief and pain because of the loss of loved ones and loneliness. I ask that they would find their strength and their hope in you, Lord, that you would continue to surround them with people who love them, that they might find good encouragement in difficult times. But we do thank you for family. We thank you for friends. We thank you, Lord, for the reality that the day is coming when we're seated with you in the heavenly places at the great banquet feast with the family of God together. Help us to experience even now those coming realities. Lord, even as we hear about these 11 Christian men who were killed in Nigeria, We ask that you'd be with their families in their grief and in their mourning. I thank you, Lord, that they've been welcomed in to your presence. But I pray for peace for their family. We pray for the political situations around the world that make way for such things to happen. We ask, Lord God, that your rule and reign would be seen more and more clearly, that your enemies more and more would be put under your feet, and Lord, we long for that day when you return again, when there is no more pain, no more trial, no more sin, no more sickness, when the former things have been done away with. Even in the church, Lord, as we battle sin, as we fight the good fight of faith, continue to give us strength for the fight of faith, knowing that we're not there yet, but we are declared there in you. And we thank you, Lord, that we can look back on our lives and see how you have changed us over the years, made us more like you and continue to do so. So in our points of discouragement, remind us of your goodness. I pray for marriages in this place, Lord. I ask that you would strengthen them. I pray for those that long to be married, that you would bring a spouse into their life. I pray for the families, Lord, that are dealing with issues with, with children. I just pray for peace and healing. For grandchildren as well, Lord God, we know there are many tears that are wept over grandchildren and we ask that you would be with families who are dealing with issues at hand in their home. 
We thank you for our nation. We pray for our leaders. We pray for the president and the vice president, for the cabinet, and all the turmoil that's faced even in this nation. We thank you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords, but we do pray your will be done here and of the nations around the world, Lord. Lord, and we close by praying as you've taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Are there any announcements this morning? You'll notice in your bulletin there is a new Bible reading plan that does go along with our kickoff of the new ESV that we've introduced. This is the reading plan, I think, out of the ESV, right, Winnie? It's part of the ESV reading plan that uh, our, our navigators, it's from the navigators reading plan. So um, take this with you, put it in your Bible. Um, I know there's quite a few people not here this week, so we'll try to make this available as well for those that aren't here. Um, you can also find it online. So uh, we'll, do, we'll do our due diligence to make sure everyone gets a copy of the reading plan. Um, again, Sunday school begins again next week. That's all that I have. John? All right, I wanted to thank everyone so much for your generosity. We had a huge turnout with uh, volunteers last Sunday at the shelter, everyone who donated food. Uh, Winnie, who's always so helpful with the, the friendship folders and the sign-up sheets, communication. Uh, we had a huge turnout with guests. I think the place was packed. It went so smoothly because everyone was there to help. Everyone was so positive, and I'm just humbled by everyone who played a part. So thank you so much. Um, I look forward to it every time, and it's it's really special to see it at Christmas time as well. Thank you. <clears throat> Any other announcements? Would you stand for the benediction? This is from Titus 2, and we're sent with these words this morning. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, training us to renounce impiety and worldly passions, and in the present age, to live lives that are self-controlled, upright, and godly while we wait for the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Live now in the power of Christ to the praise of his name. Amen. Hearts released, the hurt, the sick, the poor, 
Kingdom here, we pray. 